Hey, my name is Daniel, and I'll be reading James 5, 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of the slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Well, good morning and welcome to the weekly gathering of Christ Community Chapel. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad you're here with us, whether you're here in the West service with me, over in our East service, or watching online. Thanks for spending some time with us. I hope you've been enjoying the sermon series through the book of James. I I know I've heard from so many of you that you are finding James very practically helpful, and I'm glad. I also hope you've been taking the time to use the take-home piece that we were giving out in the atrium. It's a great way to supplement what we're talking about on Sunday mornings, and again, I've heard from many of you that that has been really helpful for you. Uh, A little bit of a doozy of a passage this morning, though. I don't know if you were paying attention when it was read. Uh, You know, last week, Pastor Joe shared in his sermon a really awful email that someone sent him. And I can't help but think James is doing the same thing to us this morning. That's a vicious six verses. Lucky me to get this week, huh? But if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to take it out and open it to James chapter 5. Take out your phone, your tablet. If you're watching online, open up web browser. Get to James chapter 5, first six verses. And as you're turning, uh, let me hold out an outline to you that I'm going to use to make this help, or help this make sense for us. Three points, they go like this, very simple. I want to talk about the logic of prosperity, the logic of poverty, and how to change the world. Okay, the logic of prosperity, the logic of poverty, and how to change the world. All right, let's start with the first one, the logic of prosperity. I don't know about you, But it is really hard for me to find myself in James chapter 5. It's really hard to read these six verses and to feel like they have very much to do with me. That's for a couple reasons. Uh, One is that no matter how much money you have, someone always has more. Which means when you get to a part of the Bible where he's talking about the rich... It is really easy to go, oh, that's not me. I'm not rich. I know people who are rich. They have way more money than me. He can't be talking to me. And the second reason is because of the things he talks about. I mean, he talks about silver and gold. I don't have much of that. He talks about oppressing laborers. And unless he means making my 14-year-old son rake the leaves so I don't have to, I'm not sure that I'm guilty of that. James 5 is the kind of passage where if I were reading through James on my own at home, I'd read a little faster through these six verses. I wouldn't necessarily be looking for very much relevance in my life. My guess is, as you heard it read, that maybe you identified with that. I'm not rich. I don't do these things. So what do we do with a passage like this 
that doesn't seem to have us in mind? Well, I think actually the answer to that is we use another passage of Scripture to help us make sense of this one. So there's this proverb in the book of Proverbs, chapter 30, verses 8 through 9, that I want to share with you. And I think if we understand it, we will understand James 5. Let me read it to you. Proverbs, chapter 30, verses 8 through 9. It goes like this. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So the writer of Proverbs says there's kind of this continuum, this economic continuum of human existence. He says on on one end of the extreme are people who are so indigent, so stricken with poverty that they will do whatever it takes to survive. He says, don't make me so poor that I, I steal. He recognizes that times could get hard enough that he would morally and ethically be compromised. He would do whatever it took to survive. That's one end of the extreme. On the other end of the extreme, he says, but don't give me so much because if you give me so much, I'll get comfortable and I'll start to say, who is God? Two ends of the extreme. So poor that I morally and ethically compromise, so wealthy, so comfortable, so prosperous that I forget you. And here's what I think we need to understand. Most of us in this room right now or in East service right now or watching online, most of us are always going to be in more danger of this end of the extreme than the other. Very few of us have plans after service to rob and steal and cheat in order to put food on the table, which means we're far more likely to be comfortable enough, to be prosperous enough that we get comfortable and forget God. That's the end of the extreme that we are prone to with our air conditioning and our central heating and our closet full of clothes and our refrigerators full of food and our 401ks and everything that we have. It is far more likely that we would forget God. That, Like the proverb writer says, we would say, who is God? Now hear me, that, he doesn't mean consciously. That like you're watching your bank account and once you cross over a certain threshold, you get all excited. You look up at the ceiling and you say, who is God? He just means that sometimes you can have enough that you get so comfortable that one day turns into two days, turns into a week, a month, a year, a decade, and you haven't really thought of God because you haven't really needed him. But if that's the beginning point, I have enough, so I'm not mindful of God. James 5 is what happens after that. What happens when you get so comfortable, so prosperous, that it's easy to forget God? How then do you live? Who then do you become? And James is going to give us three things. You can think of them as a kind of logical overflow. If I'm comfortable enough, I don't need God. If I'm wealthy enough, I start to forget God. These three things tend to happen. Number one, James says, we forget that things end. You see, the better life goes, the less we think about 
endings. The more comfortable we are, the less we think about our own end or the end of everything we have. James says that the the more comfortable we are, the more prosperous we are, the more we start to think life is good and life will be good forever. But it isn't true. Look at what James says in the very first couple of verses. He says this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. You see, he says, you, you guys have been so foolish. You, you have put all of your value and all of your resources into stuff and things, into material possessions, into status symbols. He says, but don't you realize that those things all will end? Clothes wear out. Gold and silver corrodes, cars stop working, houses get owned by someone else. Everything you chase, James says, is really just temporary. Things end. We forget that. Here's the second thing we forget. We end. We end. James says you forget that as comfortable as you are, as prosperous as you are, he says the more comfortable we are, the more wealthy we are, the less we think about death. We surround ourselves with distractions. We're we're healthy. We're happy. Who wants to think about that? But if you forget that you end, you live in a certain way. Look at what he says in verse 5. But James, just a sweetheart. Listen to this. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Then listen to this. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Thanks, James. But what's he saying? You have forgotten. You're like a fat sheep or a fat pig or a fat cow. You have forgotten that judgment is coming. You have forgotten there's an end. You have forgotten that one day you will die and you will stand before God and you will give an account for your life. And he knows and he sees and he hears and he's aware of how you're handling your resources. See, the happier, the healthier, the wealthier, the more comfortable we are, the more we forget that life is temporary. We we end. And after that is judgment. There's a third thing James says we forget. We forget that things end. We forget that we end. And we forget that people don't. I don't know if you've thought about this, but in the biblical worldview, everything is temporary. Everything is fleeting except for people. See, God has made every single person who ever lives in his image. And he's, he's endowed them with an eternal soul so that on the day of resurrection, everyone will rise either to spend eternity with God or to face his judgment. Things are not eternal. Your life on earth is not eternal. But people, people are forever. James says you put all your stock in gold and silver and in things, but you oppress the people who work for you. You forget that the waiter, the car mechanic, the the bartender, the coach, the referee, the teacher, the co-worker, the landscaper, they are eternal. They're of far more value and far more worth than anything else in your portfolio. You have forgotten that, and because of that, you have crushed them. What James is saying is you have forgotten. You are over your resources, but you are under God. 
You're over your resources, but you're under God. You have forgotten that when you forget God, you value things that don't last. You forget the day of judgment is coming and you devalue the lives of people around you. I want you to hear me on this. I don't know who James was talking to in his original audience, but you have to understand we have way more than they ever did. More technology, more things to bring about our comfort, more finances, more access to food or to physical needs. We have more than they ever did. If they were in danger of forgetting God, if they were in danger of valuing the wrong things, if they were in danger of forgetting the day of judgment, of devaluing the lives of others, how much more are we? I know it's easy to read James 5 and go, I'm not rich. I don't do these things. But those are the wrong questions. Here are the right questions. When's the last time you thought about how everything you value materially won't last? When's the last time you pondered your own end and standing before God and giving an account of your life? When's the last time you said to yourself, this person or these people have more value than anything and everything else I could ever value. You see, it isn't a conscious move away from God. Comfort, material possessions, they don't take us dramatically away from God, progressively, slowly, certainly away from God. And James says, come now, you rich, weep and howl, because you have judgment coming. That leads me to my second point, which is to say, if there's a logic to prosperity, there's a logic to poverty. I know if you're here, I was just thinking about someone this weekend who comes for the first time, maybe ever to church, or hasn't been in a while, you've been brought by a family member or a friend, and you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, it's already snowing outside. I'm up early, it's snowing, and I came just to hear this guy say, weep and howl. You know, you're looking at the person who brought you and you're saying, this is why I don't come to church. Church is awful. <laughs> I get that. I really do. But I want you to think about something. What kind of a God would say this to us? I'm just telling you, you will never understand the God of the Bible if you turn away from hard passages. I get it. I get it. I already said if I were at home and you guys weren't here, I'd speed read these six verses. I get it. But if you turn away from passages like this, you'll miss God. What kind of a God says this to us? What kind of a God warns us? What kind of a God says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming? Why would God say that? What kind of a God warns us? I think a God who warns us is a God who loves us. Let me explain that to you. Do you remember the book of Jonah? Remember Jonah? Jonah's a Jewish prophet, and God tells him to go to the Assyrian capital of Nineveh and preach to them. And Jonah hates the Assyrians. I mean, he hates them. They are his ethnic rivals, his geographic, his political. I mean, he hates them. He would literally rather die. He gets on a boat going the complete opposite direction. God sends a storm basically saying, Jonah, if you don't obey me, you're going to die. And Jonah looks at the other guys on the boat and says, I choose death. 
And he throws himself over because he's saying, I would rather drown than preach to the Assyrians. And he throws himself into the water. God has him be swallowed up by a fish. He spends three days in the belly of the fish. That's how much he hates them. It takes three days in the belly of a fish. If my wife cooks fish in the kitchen, it's delicious, but the smell is nauseating. This guy's in the belly of a fish for three days. He won't relent. Until finally he's like, fine, I'll go preach to the Assyrians. The fish spits him out. He goes into Nineveh. What do you think the message he has for them is? Why didn't he want to go? Wouldn't you expect that when he walks into Nineveh, he's going to go, Nineveh, God loves you. He wants to forgive you. He just wants to shower you with his blessings. Right? Isn't that what you'd imagine he would say? That's why he didn't want to go. That's not his message at all. In fact, in the book of Jonah, chapter 3, verse 4, this is what he says. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out. This is his message. You ready? He calls out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Here's my question. If he hates the Assyrians, why wasn't he really excited about that message? Hey, Nineveh, hey, 40 days, and then you are destroyed. Oh, 39 days, 23 hours, 59 minutes, and 40 seconds. You're going to be destroyed. You're going to be destroyed. You're going to be destroyed. Why isn't he excited to preach that message? Why isn't that good news for him? Because why does God give them 40 days? You see, God warns Nineveh, not because he doesn't love Nineveh, but because he does. He warns them because he doesn't want to destroy them. He warns them because he doesn't want judgment for them. He warns them because he wants mercy. He wants Nineveh to say, is there anything we can do? And in fact, that's what happens. And God shows him mercy. And by the way, in Jonah chapter 4, Jonah goes, gets all mad and he says to God, I knew you would do this. I knew you would do this. And Jonah understood what all the prophets understood. If God's warning you, he's loving you. Why does God write James 5 to you and to me? Because he hates us? Not at all. Not at all. Because he'd rather say it to you now than on the day of judgment. You see, when we read James 5, God is inviting us to say, when, when we read James 5 verse 1, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming. He wants us to say, well, is there anything we can do? Okay, yeah, God, I, I, I'm super comfortable. I come home every day, I, I work, I come home, I eat dinner, I watch Netflix, I go to sleep. I don't know, that's like a day, two days. That's what I do every day. That's my life. It's been a year, two years, five years, 10 years since I've thought about you, since I've obeyed you, since I've acknowledged you, since I, yes, I've forgotten you. Yes, I've mistreated people. Yes, I've valued things more than people. Yes, I've forgotten that my life will end. Is there anything that I can do? You see, God warns those that he loves. He does not want judgment for you. He wants mercy. In other words, what God is wanting is us to realize we may be materially prosperous, but we are spiritually poor. Do you hear that? We might be materially wealthy, 
But we are spiritually, morally, ethically poor. And the logic of poverty goes like this. If you get low enough, you will ask for help. It's Christmas season. I know it's not even Thanksgiving yet, but some of us can only keep them at bay for so long. I have negotiated with my wife November 1st for Christmas music. And that, listen, she wanted September. I had to push. And I'm telling you, I think she wakes up at like 12.01 November 1st and plays music quietly where I can't hear it. She is ready to go. We'll watch a lot of Christmas movies. You know about that. Hallmark movies, all kinds of movies. I've seen them. There's only one Christmas movie that's the best, though. And if you're a person of taste and class, you'll agree that It's a Wonderful Life. It's the best Christmas movie. Great movie. Do you know in that movie, Jimmy Stewart only talks to God twice? Only talks to God twice. Once in Martini's bar, when he's saying, when he's facing the loss of everything and he's thinking he's going to go to prison, and he's saying, God, he even says, God, I don't really talk much to you and I don't really, I don't really do this prayer thing, but if you're out there and you could help, And the second time is when he's on the bridge and he wants his life back and he wants to be born again and he's standing on the bridge saying, God, God, please help me, God, please help me, God. You know, that movie's telling us something. When we find ourselves completely and utterly in spiritual poverty, then, and sometimes only then, will we ask God for help. But that's exactly where God wants us. Listen, if you came in this morning and that's how you feel, you say, Zach, I feel morally, ethically, spiritually bankrupt, you are in exactly the right place. There's a hint to that, by the way, in James 5. I don't want you to think I'm reading it into there. Look at James 5, the very last verse. Look at what he says. Right after he says, we fattened our hearts for the day of slaughter. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, he has in mind the righteous workers that they've oppressed, but I can't help but read that sentence. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person and not think of Jesus. Because you see, Jesus came as the answer to all those in their poverty who will ask God for help. Jesus came as help to all those who would see judgment coming, who would hear the warning of God and say, God, is there any way out? Is there any way of escape? Is there any way I could receive mercy? And Jesus comes and Jesus lives a sinless life where we could not. Never valuing stuff over people never forgetting who God is. And Jesus goes to the cross, and on the cross, he becomes the embodiment of your sin and mine. He becomes the embodiment of all of our materialism. He becomes the embodiment of all our oppression, of all our, of all our marginalizing, of all our forgetting the value of people and forgetting the day of judgment and ignoring God. He becomes the embodiment of those things. And then God the Father is pleased to pour out his anger and judgment on Jesus. And Jesus is pleased to receive the anger and judgment on our behalf so that when he dies, he receives the judgment of James 5.1. It is as though the Father would say to the Son, come now you rich, weep and howl for the misery that is coming upon you. You see, Jesus makes it so that that sentence is about him when it should have been about me. And he dies. 
He exhausts the anger and judgment of God so that there is no misery to come. It's been poured out. And then three days later, when he rises from the dead, he says to all those, if you grab hold of me, if you believe me, if you'll come to me, I will make it so that my life counts for you and my death counts for you so that when God looks at you, he does not see an oppressor or a forgetter or a materialist. He sees a sinless son or daughter because of me. This is captured so well in the old hymn, Rock of Ages. I've told you this before. I love that song. Love it. It's just so perfectly captured. Do you remember that song? Do you remember how the verse goes? Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless Come to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Do you know it? Wash me, Savior, or I die. You see, that's the logic of spiritual poverty. God, you are talking about me. But because you desire to forgive me, not to judge me. Will you receive his mercy today? What happens when you do? That's my third point. What happens when a materially wealthy person becomes acquainted with their spiritual poverty? Well, the third point is how to change the world. You see, this is what Jesus did. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Jesus is a person of an estimable power and wealth. He's even from a gated community. Heaven, in case you didn't get that. Jesus is wealthy. He, he, he owns everything. The Bible does not teach that wealth is wrong. The logic of prosperity, wrong. But the prosperity itself, not at all. In fact, Jesus was a wealthy man who left his gated community because he valued people more than things. He leaves his gated community, runs to the bad side of town, earth, and gives his life for what really matters, people. You see, if you're here and you're a Christian right now, it is because of the radical generosity of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. What if generosity is not a command to obey? What if generosity is simply reorienting your values to agree with God's? Saying people matter more than things. People matter more than status. People matter more than comfort. That is the language of Jesus. If Jesus didn't believe those things, you and I would have no hope. But becoming a Christian isn't just receiving that. It's saying to Jesus, you have taught me, Jesus, in what you have done for me, that people matter more than anything else. What would happen in the world of James 
if one of these people he's talking about began to value people over things? What would happen if they began to say, the workers who work for me matter more than the P&L? What would happen if the people in James 5 began to say, I've amassed all these things that are going to die, or I'm going to die, one of us is going to die, so why would I hold on to it? Their world would begin to change. You see, what God desires is to teach materially wealthy people that they are spiritually poor and to change their lives with his generosity so that he can change the world through theirs. We are over our resources, but under God. I'm not asking you to be sorry for what you have. I'm asking you to consider what God would have you do with it. And I know sometimes you hear a sermon like this and you think, wow, I don't even know what that means. Where do I start? Glad you asked. That's a Thanksgiving basket. Not, not going to change the world. But why do we do Thanksgiving baskets? I know the economy is not great. I'm not an economist, okay? I'm barely a theologian. But I know my wife, when she buys groceries on Monday, is telling me all the time everything's more expensive. I mean, we have to choose between the kids going to college or getting bottles of water. And hydration is important. I get it. I get it. I know. I know. It's hard. It's not easy. I get it. But you need to understand that the reason we do these is precisely that. Because we're saying to people, listen, it's not cheap to fill one of these baskets. And we're having to say no to something in order to say yes to this. But that basket on the doorstep of a family's home is not about a basket. It's about saying to them, you matter to God. You are more valuable than whatever it is we said no to. You matter more than stuff. Stuff is temporary. You are eternal. How could you miss a chance like that? God has given you what he's given you because through you, he wants to change the world. I believe that. It's who he is. So it's to all of us to say, what do we do with James 5? Turn away from it, go back to comfort, and face judgment. Or hear the love and mercy in a God that warns us. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for loving us enough to warn us. Jonah could have shown up in Nineveh with a message four seconds, and Nineveh is destroyed. And it would have been righteous. They were pretty evil. But it wouldn't have been who you are. Thank you for the message of warning. Thank you for the grace and mercy of saying it's coming. It's not here. It's coming. Thank you even more so for the grace and mercy of a son of God who will stand between us and the judgment to come. In his name we pray. Amen.